It's the relevant top 50, counting down the best music, TV, books, and movies of 2016. This relevant podcast miniseries is brought to you by Videoblocks. Videoblocks is an affordable, subscription-based stock media site that gives you unlimited access to premium stock footage. Videoblocks also has a sister site, Audioblocks, that offers unlimited access to 130,000 premium music tracks, sound effects, and loops. Right now, Videoblocks is offering our listeners a year subscription to both Videoblocks and Audioblocks for only $149. It's an incredible discounted deal to get both stock video and audio files for any project. Get your year subscription today for only $149 at videoblocks.com slash relevant. That's V-I-D-E-O-B-L-O-C-K-S dot com slash relevant for this discounted offer. Now here's the show. Welcome to Relevance Top 50, a look back at 2016's best music, movies, TV, books, and more. I'm Jesse Carey, an editor here at Relevant, and here with me today is Relevance founder and publisher, Cameron Strang. You said you were going to say honcho. <laughs> here with me today is Relevance honcho, <laughs> Cameron Strang. This is our first episode, ladies and gentlemen, so we're still working out the titles, and Cameron demanded honcho that I'm putting this in my notes for the next episode that will inevitably happen because we're off to such a sweet start. Also with me <laughs> is our managing editor, Rebecca Joe Flores. Hi, guys. Hi, Rebecca. Uh, also joining us is content producer and social media maven. If you follow us on, on uh, Instagram, you already know her well. Ladies and gentlemen, it's Chelsea Steele. Hello, everybody. She she brings more to the table than just uh, hot debates on Instagram stories about donut preferences. <laughs> she actually has That's great true. taste and uh, is a great key member of the team. That's right, yes. and and also uh, has has some really strong opinions about donuts, which are the best kinds of opinions. And finally, <laughs> behind the ones and twos, uh, how could we possibly forget the one, the only Chandler Strang? Hello, my brother. Also, uh, people don't know this about Chandler. A lot of hot takes about donuts, too. I mean, most of his time is spent talking about donuts around the office. (laughs) Uh, So for the next six weeks, the team and I will be discussing the definitive rankings of this year's best in culture. So a little bit of an idea of what you're listening to right now. Every year, the team at Relevant, this is one of the most fun things we do, I feel like, as an editorial team is we rank the best albums, the best movies, the best TV show, basically the best things that happened in pop culture in the last 12 months. Uh, Now, uh, users, a lot of times, and readers would experience them in the form of listicles or things in the magazine, but this year we decided to do something totally different, do something totally cool, and do a, a ranking on a podcast of the best 50 things in pop culture in 2016. Now, now Jesse, I have a question. You know, we do, we will have a top 10 albums article at at the website in December. We will have top 10 books, things like that, right? Oh, absolutely. This isn't a replacement to them. This is, this is kind of its whole new animal because we're putting them all together in one list. But because there was so much great pop culture this year, we figured this would be an interesting way to, to in the, in the year with like a mini series, like a podcast. We're the golden age of podcasting right now. I don't know if you guys know that. (laughs) 
Um, but what better way to, and that was a big theme this year too, but doing a, a, a mini series right at the end of the year, recognizing some of the great pop culture we figured was a great way to end 2016. And if, if a lot of people haven't been introduced to a lot of this stuff, it could be a great introduction because we got We want this to be a really audio sonic experience where you're going to hear a lot of clips, get introduced to a lot of, uh, interesting culture, hear a lot of, uh, Debona, uh, uh debates and also hear Chelsea's hot takes on. Donuts. So the, the interesting thing too is like Settle we're going to run this article you know third fourth week in yeah. December top 10 albums of the year we've got 50 items over these next six weeks and so probably 25-ish will be music because we cover yeah. a lot of music so this is a way for us to kind of acknowledge and talk about some of the stuff we love this year that maybe wouldn't have made that final cut I'm excited about this because there's a lot of good music a lot of good, yeah. good stuff. Well, guys, let's jump right to it because we have 50 items we get, we're going to uh, uh, hit over the next six weeks. So let's let's jump right in here. British singer-songwriter Jack Garrett may be an emerging star here in the U.S., but he's been a staple of the European radio scene for years. He first gained airplay at the age of just 20 years old. This year, his breakout album, Phase, featured his unique combination of R&B, electronica, and indie pop. Known for energetic live shows and his ability to play multiple instruments at the same time. Garrett has become one of 2016's most buzzed about artists. Coming in at number 50 is Jack Garrett's Phases. about this album in particular. I mean, when this came out in the spring, I, I probably played, I kind of get obsessed with an album for a while. I mean, a lot of people <laughs> do this. I probably played this album 200 times back to back without listening to anything else. Like it was like I was traveling a lot in March or something. I don't know what it was. I, I was obsessed with this album. I thought what was fascinating was just like, it has a little bit of James Blake kind of mm, like yeah. deconstructed indie, but it was incredibly melodic. It was, in, it was just, it was, every song just was, it was interesting, but it, but it wasn't like a radio breakout type of an album. It was just one of those like complete albums where like there weren't singles. There was like an album and you just like played and let it wash over you. It was really, it, it's a great album. I love it. Yeah. If if the way that I when I first like heard this album, the way that I thought about it was like if you took James Blake and you took a Coldplay that was like a thousand times cooler, you would get some of you, no seriously, well, you would yeah, get like, some like, of Jack Garrett's best moments. It's like James Blake with good hooks, you know? Like yeah, he yeah, he doesn't have hooks, a but it has all those same kind Blake. of like yeah. All right, here's a here's a clip of his song. Worry. Pick apart the pieces you left. Don't you worry about it Don't you worry about it Try and give yourself some rest And let me worry about it Let me worry about it so I was really excited to see him when Jesse and I went to South by Southwest this year. There was this like little show. I mean, there was like, only a handful that I was like, I don't care how long the line is. I'm staying in line for whatever, you know. So we're staying in line for hours, I felt like, for for, uh, for Jack. It actually already started by the time we got in. Oh, and, yeah. Uh, it was like, what do you yeah. think, 50 people back there? I mean, it was like in a backyard. If you've been to South by, it's just these venues are just bungalow houses. And it was in the backyard. And he's back there. One man band, Dick Van Dyke style. I mean, no. it's like him with the keyboard, drums, a guitar strapped around him. He's got cymbals, and yeah. he's creating 
all of his music live. And of course, I've seen we've all seen artists loop live and things like that. But he was literally playing every note, creating every loop, and then playing That's it. Awesome. Like there was no just like hit the track and start. I'll play one or two instruments. Yeah. He built every song live. Wow, it was fascinating. Here's here's a uh, breathe life. I'd rather it, like if he played it with a full band, you know, doing it, doing a piece by yeah. piece seems like it would be a, a lackluster. We kind had of, the same, we had the same thought. Yeah. Yeah. And what it's was like, interesting. It's like, I respect yeah. it, but at the same time, it, and then we like, saw him, he was on a lineup at Lollapalooza. Right. And so now he's on a much bigger stage and I'm thinking, well, surely he's adding a few <laughs> people to the mix. Right. He can't, he can't Dick Van Dyke up there <laughs> no, on a big no, stage. No, no, no. So, uh, so, so sure enough, <laughs> his rig was bigger, but it was just him on Are stage. Are you serious? He had more stuff around him. Wow. I was going to say, I would say the contrarian thing here because I hear what you're saying. Like you could just add more pieces and make the sound bigger and make the live show more experiential. But I think there's something about restraint. It's like the sort of the white stripes things. Like if you restrain to yourself to just what two people can do, right. and in his case, just what one person can do, I think there's something a little bit more impressive. Because at some point, at some point, the song starts spiraling out of control, and he's no longer Jack Garrett. He's something else entirely. I would say this. I would say South by Southwest. It was impressive what Mm -hmm. he was doing. Like, well, look at that. He has a lot of skill, right? And logistically, it's a lot easier. You're you're bouncing around venues. It's a lot easier to do. And the venues are smaller. It like caters to an artist. But at Lollapalooza, I'll tell you this. Like again, I was a skeptic. Like he needs to add a band to this to like go up a level. He owned it. It, Like it was a great musical experience at Lollapalooza like he elevated I don't know if it's just he's a road dog now and he's just <laughs> honed his craft but sure. like he elevated it it was great but but I'm telling you I, this album uh, obviously came out early in the year we've come back to it obviously you know thinking about the end of the year list it holds up it's, it's, it's a solid album if you're interested in, in like experiencing kind of like innovative kind of like uh, unconventional takes on pop and electronic and R&B yeah. check out Jack Garrett's phase it's awesome album. I think it should be much higher than 50, but that's just me. I would agree with you. In another year, he would be above 50. Right. But as people will hear uh, like throughout this miniseries, who does he bump is the question. <laughs> like That's why he's not as high as I think he could be. And I can just give a spoiler alert. James Blake didn't even make our fi- top 50. What? <laughs> like, I mean, a, a high, highly, co- highly contested. He would have in 2011. <laughs> I, would, <laughs> I would say this. Damn. James Blake may be a better artist at at this genre, but this was not the the best yeah. James Blake album that came yeah. out this year. Yeah. Okay. So we're gonna punish him for this. Yeah. <laughs> we expect try again next year, James. I just feel like even guys like even like Jack Garrett are taking what James Blake kind of sure. initiated and are yeah, evolving it. Yeah, yeah. And like James Blake was like, okay, I've already heard this. Well, Chuck Klosterman has become one of the most important pop culture journalists of his generation. He regularly profiles some of the biggest celebrities in the world and has penned several best-selling books analyzing the hidden meanings of songs, books, TV, shows, and trends. In his latest book, But What If We're Wrong, Klosterman takes a different approach. He imagines what future generations will think of our modern times and the implications that perspective should have on art, science, politics, and contemporary culture. Chuck Klosterman was on our, what we call internally, uh, uh, a Mount Rushmore of people 
people. We don't restrict it to four, but we always use that <laughs> phrase. Like, who are the people that we would really want to talk to and get in the magazine because they have really interesting things to say? And for as long as I can remember, uh, and I, I, I Cameron can back this up, Chuck Klosterman has been on that list. Oh, yeah, no question. Coming in at number 49, the book, But What If We're Wrong? Here's a clip when we talked to Klosterman back in June. When you have a big idea, the natural human, human impulse is to keep having that concept confirmed. Like, you know, the idea of confirmation bias, that if you believe something, you will unknowingly start finding information that will support this, you know, uh, because uh, you're already prone to any information that does that. And you're like talking like in, in the section about rock music or whatever, you know, it's like, if somebody said to me, what artist from rock music will still be remembered in 500 years, I would still say, well, the obvious answer is the Beatles. The difference with this book is that I'm saying that since there's such a history of people being wrong about what seemed obvious, I have to sort of accept that the obvious answer it's completely failable. And if it, if it doesn't happen, if the obvious thing doesn't happen, what's the unobvious thing that could replace it? Hey, I also have a question for you. Now that you know, <laughs> we're not reading about the book, you're talking about the book. I have yeah. heard you yourself say Chuck Klosterman and Chuck Klosterman. Which is it? It's, I, I, I keep going back to Klosterman, <laughs> but it's actually Klosterman. It, it is close to me. I hear you deviate. You get insecure, and then you go back, and then you catch it. It's not insecure. It. <laughs> it's for years. I had another editor at this magazine call him a closer man, and he's embedded into my head. But all that to say, that's, it is. Uh, that's correct. That's his name. <laughs> that's the one. No, I'm, I'm sorry. He's saying claw. See, you guys are already in my head about this thing. You're, <laughs> you're derailing it, and it's a fantastic book. Let's let's move on. What did you? What did, what do you like about uh, about Klosterman? I'm a, I'm a huge fan. I, yeah. I've read his stuff over the years. I think he's one of the pinnacle of cultural commentators and music journalists. Uh, what what in particular about this book, you know, stood out to you this yeah, year? Yeah, so it's kind of a twofold answer because I think first for maybe that people that uh, aren't familiar with his work for a little bit deeper context for for years up at really until this book, you know, his style has sort of. Uh, played along the same lines. Like, they've been essays that analyze pop culture. I mean, there, there's been few deviations from that. He's kind of dabbled in fiction and done a lot of magazine work. But for the most part, he's concerned with essays that are kind of anthology style, like they stand alone. And they also deal heavily just with pop culture. What caught my eye about this book, and particularly why I wanted, I thought, out of everything he's done, this would be a good reason that us, Relevant Magazine, need to talk to him, is because in this book, he's not just concerned about culture, he's concerned about the nature of truth. And the lens that he looks at it with is sort of this book-long thought experiment. So basically, the idea is this. So if we were to look back like 300 years, right, and whatever that generation believed about science— now we believe is bogus. And if they were to look back 300 years prior to them, they wouldn't have believed anything that that generation believed about science. He also gives the example of like the book Moby Dick, right? When Moby Dick was released... <laughs> 
It didn't sell well and was critically panned. Fast forward 150 years, and it's arguably one of the most important works of fictions of all time. So he takes a look at how will future generations view what we're doing and what we think right now, and what are we wrong about? And I think there's some really important faith implications to that, um, especially at, at a time in faith where I feel like there's a lot of scrutiny from the science community. There's a chapter in the book where he talks, he talks to Neil deGrasse Tyson as well as Brian Green, two kind of celebrity scientists. And Brian Green, is he the red haired guy who Seth Green. Seth Green oh, no, Seth uh Green. Seth Green's sorry. actually in this book too. And uh, he's got a lot of weird theories. I don't know why he included him. Um I don't, I don't, maybe I got a weird copy. <laughs> it was signed by Seth Green, oddly. Uh, I saw him in an airport just randomly <laughs> signing books. <laughs> he was removed. He was removed. He's in prison now. Uh, no, but uh, even but even in like the science community, like th- proposing this idea, it, it 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 calls like Neil deGrasse Tyson and Chuck Klosterman to get in an argument, which is featured in the book because. The, messing with people's idea of truth is is a big deal, but one of the takeaways and one of the reasons why I think people should read this book, particularly if they are people of faith, is because what it underscored is the need that all truths should be approached with humility. That no matter how secure you are in the in your absolute truths, is to approach them with this idea that you may be wrong, and 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 the faith implications of that is like if your interpretation of truth is one way, just think that there could be future generations down the road that will will prove you wrong, and that doesn't mean that you should have doubt, but it does mean that you should have humility. And reading this book is a lot of fun, but it also underscores that idea in ways that I honestly hadn't thought about before. I have one question, because I agree with everything (laughs) you said. I have one question. Is Chuck Klosterman's phone number in your phone right Give me now? One second, I believe I do. do. Have a phone <laughs> I I will say this: we we. I've uh, never been jealous of anybody in my entire life. I am jealous of you for having Chuck Klosterman. <laughs> you know, we should <laughs> we should call him right. He told <laughs> he told me after the interview months ago if I need anything else, give him a call. So now seems like a good enough time. <laughs> <laughs> I have his email address too, Cameron. We'll, no, we'll, I've been sitting on this for a while. I thought now would be a good time <laughs> to just uh, pull it out of nowhere. But anyway, that's <laughs> that's a, a book I would definitely recommend. Well, the documentary series Chef's Table spans the globe to spotlight some of the world's most talented and innovative and acclaimed culinary talents. But beyond just a cooking show, Chef's Table is a gorgeously shot series of documentaries that show the intersections of food, place, and art. It's not a series simply about eating. It's about how food connects us to a deeper meaning, interesting people in the world around us. Coming in at number 48, Chef's Table. The knock against her was that it was too beautiful. Maybe even that she was too beautiful to be taken seriously. In the context of fine dining, cooking Mexican food was never good enough. It's a tragedy. Doctors couldn't tell me that I would ever be able to taste again. How can you be a chef and not be able to taste? My father was poor. My mom was poor. My family literally was on the streets. I thought that I had to be the best chef in India. People thought I was mad. Rules. There are no rules. One of the things that I, I'm not a foodie. 
but one of the things that grabbed me about Chef's Table this year uh, when I came across it, and I, of course, binged it like everybody does, uh, was that these stories and the way that they're told transcend food. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're, it's really an issue like they, risk-taking, creative vision, and, and, and you know, being you know, basically told you're crazy for chasing a vision that you have. And then finally one day, you know, people like get it and yeah. they, they appreciate the genius of the thing. I mean, everything about it, the risk taking, the sacrifices that they, that these uh, visionaries take and they, many lost their families or many lost, you know, just like, it's just the humanity, uh, the way that they tell these stories was just engrossing this year. Totally. I think too, this, I often people describe themselves as storytellers and rarely do I find that that is true. Like the vehicle in which they're creating is actually something that they use to tell a story. And this was the first time I understood that about food, mm-hmm. that chefs can use that to either tell more about their heritage or their passion or convey love to someone. Here's another clip. Early on in Alinea, we had this realization that there's other disciplines that we can draw on for inspiration. We would go to art galleries and you would see these giant scale pieces of art. And I would always say, why can't we plate on that? It frustrated me that as chefs, we were limited to scale that was determined by plate manufacturers. Why not a tablecloth that we can eat off of? I would like to just say this inspired me so much. I did the same after I watched this event <laughs> and I actually went to restaurants and said, why can't we print on these things? And so we're redesigning relevant and in the spring, um, it'll be printed on glass. A little ceramic plates will be sh- shipped to your house and you can put them on a shelf. So and people, people also should know that new issues are edible. Too. Yeah, <laughs> it's like the whole the whole magazine is scratch and sniff. Yeah. I'm I'm very excited about it. It's innovative, Cameron. I also never think about food. I mean, I eat it all the time, but I never think about where it comes from or like what goes into, it, especially like fine dining. I rarely eat at like super nice, expensive places that have chefs that think about this thing. But the one thing that I love about Chef's Table, particularly this season. It's a travel show as much as it is a food show that, I mean, there are some like some shots in there, some scenes in there that are, are, are like breathtaking. The, the cinematography is is unbelievable on this show. But the intentionality of experience uh, and and everything about this, I mean, it it hits on so many levels, the human angle, the creative visionary angle, the The identity that comes from, you know, your connection with the food you're making. Right. Mm-hmm. Even the, yeah, the local, the, 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 it's like, it, it helps you appreciate the creator in a, in a big sense, like mm-hmm. how yeah. this it, all works together. You it, know? It's so true because the other thing too, is like when you, and not to over spiritualize, but food is a huge part of the Bible. Like every, every, like the, a feast is constantly a metaphor all the way up through Jesus, mm-hmm. all, from the Old Testament all the way up through Jesus. And I think... Oh, and yeah, I, and the community that comes from that, like when you gather around a table of good food with your loved ones or like with your family and friends, like that connection permeates everything. Mm-hmm. 
Well, you're probably familiar with Malcolm Gladwell from a series of best-selling books, including Outliers and Tipping Point. He's also on the cover of Relevant. But in 2016, Gladwell created one of the most downloaded podcasts on the internet. The series takes complex ideas like education reform, satire, songwriting, and distills them into enlightening audio documentaries. Coming in at number 47 is revisionist history. The Colbert Report has actually been studied by a communications scholar named Heather Lamar, an assistant professor at Temple University in Philadelphia. She's part of a group of social scientists who've made a specialty out of studying how humor operates in popular culture. And she was drawn to the Colbert Report for the very reason that I'm talking about. That gap between what you as the audience know intellectually that he's trying to do and the way his performance feels. I have a lot of liberal friends, especially in, you know, academia, but I also have a lot of friends and family members that are conservative. And I started noticing that they would talk about the show as if it was equally funny, but in completely opposite ways. It struck her as something worth examining in more detail. Why are my Republican friends and family members watching him every single night and finding him hilarious, but they see him making fun of liberals? And my liberal friends love him to death. I'm just biggest fans ever and think it's hilarious that he's making fun of people like Rush Limbaugh and Bill O'Reilly. One thing that I have loved about Malcolm Gladwell's work is his ability to find truth hiding in plain sight. Um, And I think this podcast, Revisionist History, is a really great example of that. He can take these huge ideas that you would have never thought about before, even something complicated like a social issue like education reform, and expound on them in in ways that are completely enlightening. And he's he's a great writer. I think a lot of people recognize that. But what he was able to do with this podcast was create a a listening experience that is one of the few truly binge-worthy podcasts, other than the one you're listening to right now <laughs> which is sorry it's gonna be it's gonna be the course of six weeks guys so you just have to you know i know you're gonna be just refreshing over and over again but if you need binge listening in the meantime revisionist history should be where you go to uh because it, it is not only like educational but it was super entertaining and compelling yeah i don't listen to many podcasts but uh you wouldn't stop talking about this one so I finally did. Oh. I downloaded a couple of episodes that I felt like they yeah. wouldn't be boring. And this, uh, he, the the way he unpacked satire uh, and Stephen Colbert in particular was fascinating. It is interesting unpacking the idea of what makes satire effective and what makes it funny but completely ineffective. And that's something that Malcolm Gladwell does. Not just uh, thinking about it, that topic, mm-hmm. but the entire series. It gets you thinking about interesting ideas in new ways. Originally hailing from Reading's Bethel Church, Jesus Culture is a worship outfit known for stadium-style anthems, intimate ballads, and the vocals of Chris Kilala and Kim Walker-Smith. Coming in at number 46, here is Let It Echo. I have one question, Jesse. You called them a worship outfit. Is that a particular <laughs> kind of clothes that you should wear to like, like praise dancing and stuff? 
It's it's majestic, and what's cool, <laughs> what's a cool about of it? Praise, if you will. Oh, yes. no. <laughs> oh wow! The, the coolest part about it, it has my praise banners built into the sleeves. So <laughs> when I do when I do victory out. laps during that song, the, the, <laughs> you guys are familiar with Your the charismatic church yeah. victory lap. Is it a Spider-Man situation? I, just... I'm running the perimeter of the church full sprint, <laughs> and the and the <laughs> the banners in my worship outfit are flowing behind, and that's this... why it comes in at number four six. <laughs> <laughs> that explains over. Kim Walker's laugh and all of her songs. She's probably watching you run around. Can you rotate the colors of the sleeves? <laughs> I spin there. really quick. Yeah. <laughs> one of the things. One of the things that's unique about the music that we cover at Relevant is that we are just interested in like covering great art, and we want to find things that are redemptive and good and moving things forward and creatively interesting. And and then when we want to like connect spiritually through music we we want stuff that's like vertically yeah. lyric and it's like intentional about creating that experience and that connection with god um god can reveal himself in all sorts of ways and through great art he's a creative god and creative things reflect him but uh there's something unique about worship music as a genre and that's why we cover it um so over the years we've covered like secular music and modern worship. And that's kind of like our, our gamut. Um, we, this year, I mean, it's amazing what's coming out. I mean, Bethel yeah. and Jesus culture and Hillsong United. And, uh, there's, there's amazing stuff all over. I mean, that's just a handful, but, um, it's, it's kind of like the golden era of worship music right now. It's like not just the arena stuff. I'm not talking about that. The intimate, yeah. Yeah. you know, very personal stuff that really, uh, can transform your life. It's really an amazing thing. And this is a fantastic album. Yeah, one thing I love about Jesus culture is that whether you enjoy the music or not, you can't deny the passion that they have. Yeah, I mean, Chris has a great voice, too, you know, let's admit, but Kim Walker-Smith, I mean, come on. Live for Kim. There's no way you could Ha-ha. say that she's not yeah, one of the she's best vocalists. she's a powerhouse. Vocalists. I love her. Yeah. I, I'm, not, I'm uh, not throwing shade at any other worship act, but they have two of the most powerful voices, just vocally, in, sure. you know, making worship music right now. There's a reason this is their ninth live album that they've put out. Yeah, here's another one. After a four-year hiatus, Bon Iver returned in 2016 with 22 A Million, an experimental collection of atmospheric instruments, sonic soundscape, and deconstructed indie rock. It was one of the most interesting and one of the most polarizing albums of the year. Coming in at number 45, 22 A Million. Staying at the Ace Hotel, call I would like to point out two things before we start the discussion. Number one, that song, 33 God, has the word God in it, so that's why we're all right. 
That it was almost and number one. And also Jesus's year. <laughs> number two. Oh, I never got that. <laughs> and number two, Jesse called Bon Iver a leader in any music. <laughs> any so, music. <laughs> so if you're an introvert, uh, this is the sort of album that or you probably listen to a lot. <laughs> yeah. It's you know I want to make well, sure that all, <laughs> that all our demographics are well represented and any's you know. I, here's things, but I looked at this list. Believe it or not, 49 items people have Audi belly buttons, and I, <laughs> I the whole reason for inclusion because let's be honest, uh, Rebecca and Chelsea, who listen, this is a weird album. Am I not? Am I wrong? It is strictly it, for Ennies. For Ennies, as an yeah. Audi, I can say that. What I what I found the most interesting about this album is his artistic decision to name every song like as if it was an autocorrect mistake. You know, like it just looks like he took his phone out of his pocket and was like, "Yeah, that's yeah. that's the name for." I think it's interesting that people were so up in arms about how experimental it was because when For Emma Forever Ago came out, it was super experimental at the time. It was, yeah. But I think now it's it's experimental plus Kanye is now like Ivor's best friend. Well, that's the thing. Like, I I feel like Kanye this year tried to reimagine what the album is. Like with Life of Pablo, it's constantly adding new music, taking things away and changing. It's not what we think of as like an album is. And I think uh, Bon Iver with this album is rethinking what a song is because some (laughs) of these, and I'm not, look, that's not an insult. Like he's doing something experimental, but it isn't for everyone. But some of these you can play and they're not songs like you're thinking of songs. It's a collection of sounds and he's trying something totally different with it. Some would say a collection of noises. Here's an example. I've been calling fire. I stayed down the other night. I've been calling fire. I stayed down. In the documentary 13th, filmmaker Ava DuVernay conducts a shocking investigation to the criminal justice system, looks at the the problems that for-profit prisons have caused uh, in America, and why the prison system needs major reform. Coming in at number 44, 13th. So you see now, suddenly there's an awakening that, oh, perhaps we need to downsize our prison system. It's gotten too expensive. It's gotten out of hand. Um, But the very folks who often express so much concern um, about the cost and the expanse of the system um, are often very unwilling to talk in any serious way about remedying the harm that has been done. History is not just stuff that happens by accident. We are the products of the history that our ancestors chose if we're white. If we are black, we are products of the history that our ancestors most likely did not choose. Yet here we all are together, the products of that set of choices, and we have to understand that in order to escape from it. This was one of the most shocking and jarring 
film experiences I've had in a long time. Um, Some might say necessary. I, I haven't seen it yet. Is it on, where is it? Netflix? You it's can, on, yeah, it's, yeah, on, it's Netflix. on Netflix. And what, and it's it's about the criminal justice system and everything. I've heard yes. I've heard everybody talking about it. Tell me why tomorrow night I need to go watch it. It was well. First of all, it was the first documentary ever to open the New York Film Festival. Come on now. Yeah, incredible. I think it's important, given the racial climate our country's in currently, to watch because it doesn't just pick up right now where we're at. This takes you on a hundred and fifty year journey of America's history and how that plays into mass incarceration today. Right. Cameron, you are you familiar with the book, The New Jim Crow? The New Jim Crow. I was just going to say, I read that earlier in the year and, or last year, and this sounds like it's similar. unpacking a similar mm-hmm. trajectory. And, Very similar. And, and that book changed my well, life. I mean, that was... Yeah. If you want that experience of reading The New Jim Crow condensed into an hour and a half experience, this film it, it will do that. And it's based on the idea, the 13th, of the 13th Amendment, that uh, it's, there's actually like a loophole in the 13th Amendment that makes slavery illegal. And that says that if someone's incarcerated, they're still essentially subject to be enslaved. And now we have these, ma- we have more people in prison in the United States than by a huge margin than mm-hmm. any other country in the world. And there's an economic ex- incentive uh, to keep it that way. It's, it is a shocking, shocking film. If you're in the prison business, uh, you don't want reform. You may say you do, but you don't. And there are a bunch of people out there desperately trying to make sure that that prison population does not drop one person because their economic model needs that. Prison industrial complex refers to the system of mass incarceration and companies that profit from mass incarceration. That includes both operators of private prisons, which get a lot of attention, as well as a vast sea of vendors. From Securus Technologies that supplies telephone services that made 114 million in, in profits last year. Those calls to family and friends are costing a pretty penny in state prisons. They inflate the price that they charge the inmate and the inmate's family. For example, in Maryland, if you earn minimum wage, you'd have to work an hour and a half to afford a 10-minute phone call. Yeah, I mean, it's incredible that this documentary isn't more well-known or even more well-talked about because just earlier this year, like last month, we had the biggest prison strike in American history, and that didn't really make it to you know national news. Um, that was taken over by, by other discussions in the election, <laughs> but... Um, yeah, this is an extremely imperative documentary. Well, in 2016, there was no shortage of people that could read the news, but only one person had the distinction of consistently making the news almost every night. John Oliver would take on big, controversial topics, not only uh, interjecting them with his sense of uh, righteous indignation, but also humor. Coming in at number 43... Last week tonight. Let me walk you through what our screening process actually is. If you're a refugee, first, you apply through the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees, which collects documents and performs interviews. Incidentally, less than 1% of refugees worldwide end up being recommended for resettlement. But if you're one of them, you may then be referred to the State Department to begin the vetting process. At this point, more information is collected. Uh, you'll be put through security screenings by the uh, National Counterterrorism Center, uh, the FBI, and the Department of Homeland Security. And if you're a Syrian refugee, you'll get an additional layer of screening called the Syria Enhanced Review, which may include a further 
another check by a special part of Homeland Security, the USCIS Fraud Detection and National Security Directorates. And don't relax yet, because we've barely even started. Then you finally get an interview with USCIS officers, and you'll also be fingerprinted so your prints can be run through the biometric databases of the FBI, the Department of Homeland Security, and the Department of Defense. And if you make it through all that, you'll then have health screenings, which, let's face it, may not go too well for you, because you may have given yourself a stroke getting through this process so far. But if everything comes back clear, you'll be enrolled in cultural orientation classes, all while your information continues to be checked recurrently against terrorist databases to make sure that no new information comes in that wasn't caught before. All of that has to happen before you get near a plane. This process typically takes 18 to 24 months once you've been referred by the UN to the United States. This is the most rigorous vetting anyone has to face before entering this country. No, no terrorist in their right mind would choose this path when the visa process requires far less effort. But, but nevertheless, the House still voted on Thursday to add a few more steps. The House voted 289 to 137 for tougher screening procedures, requiring the FBI director to sign off on each and every refugee. He signs off? On, that is ridiculous. At this point, why don't we just include a pie-eating contest, a spelling bee, and an evening wear portion? I love John Oliver. <laughs> I think I, he's great. <laughs> he's what, on Sunday night, like, I, I will admit, like, it's one of the shows... Like I, I DVR it. Like I, I, I'm all in. Wow. I love everything about it, <laughs> and I don't watch it as often as I would like to admit <laughs> that I watch it. And then every then when I'm watching it, I'm like, I love this. This is great. But then like, but I rarely find myself yeah. in the mood to like learn something yeah. and like you know be challenged and all that. Because <laughs> you know the, you will feel convicted at. That's some the thing. Point. It's like he's illuminating <laughs> something that I wasn't paying attention to, and is off in our country. And he's creating news. I mean, he's. Yeah. It's like he thrives in that thing of like finding the like obvious that, uh, John, I think John Stewart did this too mm -hmm. you know like that it's like how how is this okay you know and like yeah. and he brings it to the national conversation and in a year where like the news is you know showing us that it loves to gravitate toward the lowest common denominator I'm so thankful for people like John Oliver that are uh, elevating the conversation and highlighting things that need to be highlighted. I just wish I watched it more often. I probably watch <laughs> about a third of them. Well, I, I'll say this though: after John Stewart left The Daily Show and Colbert went on to do, you know, to, to abandon his character that he created, say boring interviews on CBS for the old people. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. The, you notice, I hate to say it. Notice Stephen Colbert's not on our list this year. Um, <laughs> but it was, it, you know, oh. I think everyone was kind of waiting to see like who would occupy that lane because and it's nothing against Trevor Noah but you know I don't he's no Jon Stewart and I think right. Samantha, yeah. Samantha B may show up in this conversation in does. the top 50 I'm just saying <laughs> she she and Oliver are in the same lane yeah, yeah. For, but I think what stands what, what brings Oliver apart is his ability to highlight issues that no one else is talking about like right. he's just not making he's just not pointing out of you know hypocrisy among yeah. the, the elites he's Samantha Samantha B is assumed has assumed the John Stewart yeah. mantle sure. John Oliver is a new lane exactly. I mean honestly like and he has a British accent I mean <laughs> everything sounds disarming yeah. <laughs> I would say I, I'll say this I never thought about the refugee crisis like that and also how about that cute accent and he's got. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just saying, think about why he's saying is so receivable. <laughs> That's why I like James Gordon. I mean, you're right. Yeah. 
Yeah. British guys British guys are the best. <laughs> I have a feeling I have a feeling uh that won't be the last British guy to make it on this list. And mm, the only way not. you're going to be able to find out is if you continue to tune in uh to the relevant top 50. We'll, we'll find out more when we're looking at the 42 other things that we're excited about in pop culture this year. But first off, I want to thank uh everyone for uh joining us today around the table. Guys, thank you for all your thoughtful contributions to the discussion. And if you are an adorable British man, Chelsea Steele can be reached by messaging the relevant Instagram account. And if you want to enlighten her about uh, like a pressing global issue that doesn't get a lot of press, I think she'll also be receptive of it with that British accent. (laughs) You're not wrong, Jesse. (laughs) (laughs) So we'll see where those show up. Uh, We'll see where more British guys show up along with a lot more uh, in in coming weeks. But in the meantime, be sure to follow us uh, at Twitter at Relevant Podcast. If you're looking for more great content, head over to relevantmagazine.com. And finally, thanks to our sponsor, Video Blocks. Don't forget, you can get your subscription today for only $149 at videoblocks.com slash relevant. That's videoblocks, V-I-D-E-O-B-L-O-C-K-S dot com slash relevant for this discount offer. Well, everyone, until next week, this has been the Relevant Top 50. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.